there's never been a better time to start planning your career's trajectory. With LSU's online engineering programs, you can equip yourself with the skills to move forward in your career. Their degrees are 100% online and designed for working professionals balancing life's responsibilities. LSU Online offers multiple engineering degrees and certificates with focuses in industrial, civil, healthcare, petroleum, and transportation. They also offer affordable flat rate tuition nationwide. That's just one of the many reasons U.S. News ranks LSU Online as one of the best online programs for a master's in engineering. Visit online.lsu.edu slash podcast to learn more and receive a code to waive the application fee. This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Welcome to Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. I'm IISE's Michael Hughes. Today, we welcome Bubler Thacker Weigold, Associate Director of Programs at ETH Zurich, which is kind of like Switzerland's MIT. And we're going to talk about how the performance of global supply chains during the coronavirus era could be considered their finest hour. Good morning, or I guess it's a rainy evening in Switzerland, Boo Blue. It is indeed. Thank you for having me today, Michael. Well, it's an absolute joy to have you. You've been one of my favorite people to work with and talk to for well over a decade now, back to when you started writing articles for me when I was a managing editor of ISC Magazine. And one thing I really like about you is you always have something to say about the conventional wisdom and how usually the conventional wisdom is wrong. That <laughs> dates back to your, uh, your article on how lean does not always mean cheap. And I really like that. That's your favorite one. Yes, we definitely go back a long way. And I guess that's a nice way of saying, Michael, that I have a lot of opinions. But I think it's important that we all reflect on what's going on, that we, um, you know, we, we interpret events around us and that we have some critical thinking. So I'm glad if it's been useful to you and your readers. And, you know, the every day gets more interesting. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, the topic we really want to tackle today, you know, we're coming out of the coronavirus epidemic. Things are getting back to normal. But a lot of the let's call it legacy big media I've read from The New York Times to Supply Chain Dive to even the website of the Institutes of Supply Chain Management have talked about how lean and just in time failed during the pandemic Yet you and a coterie of other people are talking about how the pandemic was lean's finest hour. So how do you explain that to people like me who went into the Kroger and the Publix and couldn't find toilet paper? Well, I I think um, you've mentioned quite a lot of things there, Michael. Um, let's start, let's uh, sort of unpack that here. So we we've we've seen the world go through like a terrible crisis, and first and foremost, it was a health crisis, and where um, a lot of lives were lost, and there was a great deal of suffering, um, and that obviously makes it right into the media. And um, as the the health crisis uh, progressed and still is going on in in too many countries of the world, um, you know, we had an economic crisis and the and the economic crisis brought a lot of um, supply chains that normally um, 
function quietly in the background, sort of, uh, you know, without catching anyone's attention, all of a sudden it, it uh, uh, became very visible how supply and and inventory and availability um, really are the engines of, of, of our well-being and of, of, of the prosperity in our societies. And um, the most visible things for us as individual consumers, those of us who don't work in, in industry, um, is obviously, you know, our daily trips or our regular trips to the to the grocery store. So something happens, um, uh, what we think is a vital item uh, is missing for a couple of hours or for a couple of days. Um, and I think in the general anxiety of of, of uh, this terrible time, the media picked up on it. And uh, we saw a lot of media coverage of empty shelves. Um, there was a viral um, sort of behavior and, and uh, communication going on around um, something as peculiar as toilet paper, which I'm not, don't get me wrong, it's not non-essential. We all know that we all need it and use it every day, um, but uh, it was it was a very strange time where sort of uh, shelves, uh, uh, empty shelves, and and um, a run on toilet paper uh, made us feel that the end, the world was ending. Um, let's let me summarize that what what the media was started to pick up on um, was uh, was a, a belief that supply chains in the world had failed. And that our supply chains um, have failed because they have been become too lean over the years, um, and um, yeah, and that's that's very interesting that that all of a sudden everyone was an expert on supply chain management um, uh, without necessarily having the background on it. What you're referring to um, from our previous conversations is a quote I take directly from Professor Yossi Sheffi at MIT, and he said, "No, this is simply not." true, um, our supply chains did not fail. Um, in fact, it was uh, they experienced their finest hour. And uh, Yossi Sheffi, uh, together with um, other colleagues of mine, explained that it's not that supply chain, that lean was not the culprit um, in a period of disruption. Uh, lean can be the solution. We have to look at this in a much more qualified way. And um, the media is not necessarily the place to get the information. Give me a couple of examples of how lean was a solution during this rather than the problem. Well, I'm not saying lean was the solution in in um, in the pandemic. The fact let's let's again, uh, let's look back at what the problem was. Uh, the fact that we had a disruption because of a health crisis in the world. People couldn't go out. Um, they couldn't go out to work. Uh, we, uh, you know, our, our suppliers in various parts of the world couldn't go to, to their factories. Uh, they couldn't get their supplies. So then we had like a whole chain reaction of, of things going wrong and uh, material couldn't flow. And sort of final destination of, of material in a supply chain is obviously the shelf uh, where the consumer buys it. And so um, when uh, when toilet paper seems to disappear, um, it creates a panic a reaction among the consumer. And as I said, the, the interpretation of this problem, uh, the, the disruption itself said that there was something wrong in the way that we managed that process. I guess the first point I want to make with that is that the, the fact that we had a disruption itself is not evidence that uh, the supply chain's 
did not work in general. We do not set up our supply chain so that they are constantly functioning um, under every form of duress. What we do set them up uh, to do is to have like a certain minimum and economically viable uh, level of service. Um, so almost no supply chain will ever have 100% availability of any goods. What we're trying to do as supply chain managers is to have enough inventory in the chain so that, you know, we have you know the maximum amount of availability that that our our business model um, needs and can tolerate and and that will be different for different types of supply chains some of the stuff that you sent me has talked about increasing resilience yes now the the ones that i've read from you have talked about a lot of that would have to do with less lead time. One of the major functions of lean is to try to reduce lead time. And if you reduce lead time, you don't need to increase safety stock to these gargantuan levels where you have entire warehouses full of stock sitting there. Right. Other people have said that to increase resiliency in the supply chain, we need more safety stock. So how do you kind of balance those two in the future to deal with these sorts of disruptions? Well, they certainly don't contradict each other. Um, I think that uh, we have to remind ourselves that lean should not be taken literally. Um, lean is a management practice that um, was was invented by Toyota and then became the Toyota production system, um, which is still absolutely valid today. It's it, it's not like it, it only applies um, in certain um, situations. What we have to remind ourselves really is that um, lean does not mean zero inventory, that we shouldn't take it literally, um, that there's there are lean supply chains with no inventory and that there are fat supply chains with too much inventory. Lean has many, many different aspects, but one is customer orientation. One is removing waste out of the system um, that includes inventory, but is not um, is not just about removing um, excess material. The shortening of the supply chain is a, is um, a very key principle of of lean management. In that, it, the by having supply chains that are shorter and that are simpler, and having suppliers that are nearby will give companies the opportunity to see where inventory is building up. If a supplier is nearby and your supply chains are shorter, um, you will be able to have less inventory in there. But it's a, it's a complex analysis. I don't think we ever look at any one supply chain of any one business case and say it should have zero inventory or a lot of inventory. There are three different types of inventory in every supply chain, and um, or at least three. Um, they include cycle stock and safety stock for um, for unexpected uh, occurrences and they can pipeline stock as well um, for the uh, material that's it's on its way between nodes so we have to differentiate these three and and when you read in the paper that or in the media um, or you 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 hear a simple statement saying you know we should not be lean um, this is simply an absurd statement what we want to have is is to have a, a clear understanding of, of what sort of service levels we want to provide for our customers, um, how what the minimum amount of inventory we need in the system um, has to be, and that's that's a mathematical calculation, and um, uh, you know how much sta- safety stock we want to have as insurance against unexpected events 
like a pandemic and calculating that is is part of our effort to make our supply chain systems resilient. I guess I would say also that individual companies themselves are not going to be resilient. It's the system that's resilient and um, it's suppliers and manufacturers and distributors and resellers working together and responding quickly to changes in the system that makes the system more resilient. And so resilience is, is a team effort. So you mentioned a couple of things there that I'd like to unpack. Um, first off, talking about the shorter supply chains or a shorter supply chain allows you visibility into where the issues might arise and where the three kinds of stock might be out of balance. Correct. And also you mentioned responding to signals. You know, one thing most people did notice is the shelves didn't stay empty forever. No, absolutely not. You would come back the next day or two days or three days later and they would be full. Now there would be a run and they get empty pretty quick, but two or three days later or the next day, the truck would come in and the shelves would be filled again. Again, if you look at the the media and, and you take one snapshot and you publish that in the newspaper, you'd feel like the the world was ending. Our world definitely did not end, and certainly not in the rich countries. And this is something that, that Yossi Sheffi says in his book. Um, it's called The New Abnormal. He said that we have to remind ourselves that the way a supermarket shelf is refilled is um, is in the evening. Uh, or overnight, mm-hmm. uh, when when the the store is shut down, um, you don't. I don't know. Um, you don't usually see the the big shipments come in to restock the shelves. Um, but uh, if toilet paper ran out uh, during the day, it would usually be back either the next day or within within a very short period of time. I would simply claim that that is an acceptable level of service for for most uh, places and for most people, just because of that. I would judge that, um, you know, the the supermarkets, like these consumer supply chains did an excellent, excellent job in keeping up with this huge surge of demand um, for for certain products during the crisis, that they actually didn't fail. They did not demonstrate uh, lack of resilience or being too lean or having no inventory. Um, there, There were very temporary stockouts that were dealt with immediately. What supermarkets and and consumer supply chains were dealing with um, in this in behind the scenes and and heroically without our seeing it is simply a shift of demand from restaurants, from uh, public cafeterias and and public places to eat to eating at home. So all of that purchasing power that went um, into these uh, into these these other channels that we normally patronize. They shut down overnight. Whatever was in the pipeline and had been planned to be delivered to them uh, was simply not bought or canceled. And all of that demand shifted overnight into um, private consumption through supermarkets. And if you look at, at, at how much actually stocked out and whether, you know, how many of us actually went to a supermarket and it was empty for a week or two weeks None of that happened. There were very, very temporary um, shortages. Um, nobody starved. Um, the, the level of need at that level was, I think, uh, admirably contained, was low. And uh, so considering the shock they underwent, 
the supply chains demonstrated resilience. And they demonstrated resilience not because they they had huge inventories on the ready, on the go, um, but because they were able to um, reconfigure quickly and um, and look for alternative sources or alternative ways to get the job done. Um, some of them work, you know, long hours. They put in extra shifts. Um, those who have, have spoken to these companies, I mean, they, they did an outstanding job. So um, that is resilience, is having an agile response together as, uh, as sort of multiple nodes in the supply chain. And uh, in this case, uh, it was really um, a huge sort of reallocation of demand into, into a channel that uh, wasn't used to dealing with that sudden surge. And that's true. And, and you think about everything that was lost during the pandemic, the, the hundreds of thousands of lives. I think, I think the death toll runs into the millions worldwide. A lot of those people were involved in working in these supply chains. And so they had to deal with you know, loss of labor as well as the massive shift in supply. And as the supply chain is simply a set of signals from one end to the other. It was explained to me a long time ago by, a, by an industrial engineering professor. These signals worked and the system adjusted and adjusted, in, in your words, very admirably to get stock back into the stores in an acceptable level of time. I mean, I didn't starve. Maybe I couldn't find this particular cut of meat. Okay. So I had to eat some hamburger as opposed to a steak or, you know, fruity pebbles as opposed to fruit loops or something like that. But exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't want to minimize, uh, you know, the discomfort that we felt. And of course, I think we have to separate the healthcare supply chain and what was happening on the health front and that frontline workers were exposed uh, to this and they had to keep going. Um, people that we normally don't think as being very, very important were out there saving our lives by keeping the lights on and keeping the stuff moving. Um, so, uh, yes, absolutely. They, they deserve um, to be better paid. They deserve to um, they deserve protection. Um, but yeah, that, I think we have to separate what was hap happening um, in terms of health. And like I said, the healthcare supply chain is very interesting and very important case. Um, but in consumer goods that, that kept us fed, that kept us clothed, that kept toilet paper, you know, in, in our households, uh, they worked um they worked really, really well. So um, when, you know, if we look critically at the, at the information we got um, from news channels, and often I was disappointed to see my colleagues, professors also sort of repeating these types of platitudes, and I'm going to call them that, uh, meaning sort of mindless uh, evaluations uh, or mindless opinions on what was going on. I think uh, the reality is different. Um, we simply know that, that there was enough to eat in rich countries. Um, that didn't necessarily happen, by the way, in poor countries, um, but uh, sort of uh, in the societies that, that uh, you know, have that luxury. The supply chains worked. They were agile. And, um, you know, we supply chain management has developed as a field in the past 30 years to react quickly to things, to reconfigure themselves quickly, to keep information moving to keep talking to our suppliers and to our redistributors and to ourselves, meaning within our own organizations um, that are making things. So it did work. Okay. 
As an engineer, you have the power to impact and shape the future of the world. But we know how hard it is to balance life's responsibilities with getting the education necessary to advance your career and make that impact. The engineering programs offered through LSU Online make it easy to learn at a pace and schedule that's convenient for you. Their programs are 100% online, specifically designed to be flexible for working professionals. LSU Online offers multiple engineering degrees and certificates with focuses in industrial, civil, healthcare, petroleum, and transportation. U.S. News ranks LSU Online as one of the best online programs for a master's in engineering. And with flat rate tuition offered to students nationwide, LSU Online's engineering programs are also some of the most affordable programs available. Accelerate your career growth and leave a lasting impact on the world with LSU Online. Get started by visiting online.lsu.edu slash podcast to learn more and receive a code to waive the application fee. Let's talk about the healthcare supply chains. They did struggle a lot. It looked like from the outside looking in, but even thinking back on it, I, I know we had, I believe it was a GM plant. We had a webinar last year, a team of industrial engineers went in and shifted it from making car parts to ventilators when I forget it was a very short time span. Um, mask production went up. Exactly. I think GM converted a plant to to make ventilators. Yeah. You take a look at uh, distilleries went from producing, you know, bourbon and whiskey and vodka to producing hand sanitizer. And they switched based on all these signals that are going through the supply chain. Absolutely. I mean, and, um, you know, you have to, you have to admire uh, people, um, you know, uh, making that effort and, and, and pulling their resources together. There were, there were like perfume companies over here that started making hand sanitizers. And, um, and so uh, we, we were trying to re reconfigure our manufacturing um, to, to make the, the things that, that we need. And, um, you know, when people put their minds together and we have, we have actually very, um, very uh, agile uh, resources that create resilient systems. If people do work together and uh, keep the information and, and so on moving. And now uh, your, your question was uh, what happened in the, in the healthcare supply chain. Um, there were shortages of personal um, pr protective equipment, masks, and it's a horrifying thought to, to think of, a, of a, um, a doctor um, trying to, or, you know, a healthcare worker, nurse, all those, all those frontline workers dealing with, with a terribly um, infectious pathogen um, and, and not having enough equipment and, and no society on earth can afford to lose their doctors um, in a crisis like that. We have to protect these people because um, you know, the system has to keep, keep working. Um, we did have very serious shortages in that. And, you know, like a food supply chain and a medical supply chain are really sources of our, you know, of our well-being um, in in society. And uh, we have to have high levels of service um, in medical supply chain. So we did have stockouts and I, I, I'm not an expert in, in all of these uh, supply chains, but, um, you know, normally medical supply chains actually are supply chains that have high levels of inventory in them. Most hospitals that I know, certainly in, in, in Europe, have uh, 
um, you know, high stockpiles of of life-saving drugs because there is no tolerance um, for running out of, uh, say, a cancer therapy or even a painkiller. No society will tolerate that. So that's one of the supply chains in our society, in, in our world that uh, tends to run on a lot of inventory um, that that where we, we tolerate and are willing to pay for that stockpile. Um, and I guess the point that that one of the points I would make uh, by comparing uh, that to other supply chains is simply not all supply chains are the same. Um, they're uh, designed differently. They have different purposes. They have different business cases. Some things uh, people are willing to pay for. Um, some things uh, not. We expect them to be cheap and fast and available. Some things we're willing to wait for. Some things we're not willing to wait for. Um, um, again, we were we were talking about the the misinformation that's spread by the media. One of the impressions that you will get is that we have a global supply chain, or that all supply chains became too lean, or that uh, they all failed and were, were were not resilient. Now we have to take. Now we all have to become resilient, and now we have to have. Um, extra um, insurance, meaning we have to have extra stock. We should keep uh, redundant supply. We should keep uh, inventory. Um, this type of, of uh, global or, or very, very general recommendation uh, to any business manager should, should really make us um, nervous because, uh, as I said before, every supply chain is different. They have different designs. They have different strategic purposes and they have different products. And um, based on all of these variable factors, we design them in different ways. And some are actually slow, some are fast, some are push, some are pull, some have lots of inventory, some have very little inventory. Um, some are all about access. Um, yeah, I'm working in humanitarian supply chains. They are usually depending on on whether they're emergency or development supply chains. Um, some of them will have very expensive uh, stockpiles of uh, of inventory, or um, they will have expensive forms of transport to get um, the job done. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, we do not have one global supply chain and it's all about uh, delivering goods, um, but they are highly differentiated. They're differentiated according to um, the strategic intent of the organization. They're differentiated according to the product that they're moving and they're selling and, or they're making, moving and selling. Um, and they're differentiated according to the market that they serve. Um, a cancer patient is a totally different um, person uh, taking, uh, you know, a good um, then would be someone who's uh, buying a can of beer. You know, shortages in, in one case will have different costs and consequences than shortages in others. You mentioned you know, one global supply, one global supply chain you mentioned. I don't and, mention it. Uh, actually, well, other people. Uh, Michael, you mentioned I, that other I, people mentioned actually, that. Actually, and I, you know, I was just to prepare for this podcast. I was looking at at, at newspaper articles and even art, like I said, articles written by by my colleagues in, at at, uh, at universities. It's amazing how sloppy we are with our language and talk about the global supply chain as if such a thing existed. So I would never ever say it that there's one one type of supply chain. There are really in like infinite variants. I just want to emphasize that again. We talk about globalization, how we have, or we, the media, you see it all the time. We have 
long lengthy supply chains, uh, one global supply chain for everything. But you say everybody has different supply chains depending upon their particular business, their particular customers, what sector they're in. And specifically talking about healthcare, that hospitals had heavier inventory levels to deal with such emergencies because, you know, the cancer patient has to have their interferon or whatever, or their radiotherapy or whatever. So, but even with that said, this pandemic was such a wall of tsunami hitting healthcare centers. You know, I remember particularly the stories coming out of, uh, I believe it was Northern Italy where the first big hotspot was. Mm -hmm. And then in New York city was another one and several others that I'm not sure any amount of safety stock could have prepared for that. No. And that's, um, that was, again, a disruption in itself occurs over and over again uh, in the history of the world. Disruption is not evidence that the supply chain was designed wrong, but, you know, we had a disruption, like we've had disruptions before and I can list them all. Um, But I think we all know that Um, what you're describing here, let's, let's reconstruct uh, what, what, what happened in the last two years. It started in apparently in a wet market in, in China, um, and so we had a pathogen, highly contagious pathogen that, that hit an industrial center in Wuhan. It's actually sort of a natural disaster that spread to become sort of a global economic disaster. And so what happened is that economic activity shut down in Wuhan itself. They took a very draconian after, you know, sort of dragging their feet. They, they had a very draconian response to that. And so factories in Wuhan shut down and it, it spread to the reason it spread to northern Italy, by the way, is because northern Italy, in case you don't know, uh, in the uh, Bergamo and um, that area is a very, very um, high tech, intense industrial area where um, they have suppliers in Wuhan um, and uh, they actually have their own. It's like it's north of Milan and they're, you know, uh, through that airport and and through that whole highway system, there's like one factory after another. And um, there is a dedicated airport that goes to China there. So it wasn't that surprising with people and goods moving between those two places that it hit Italy next. And why it spread suddenly in Italy, there are theories, but some of the analyses go that, you know, uh, multiple generations live in, in uh, live together in that part of the world. So cultural factors, economic factors, uh, behaviors of, cult- of, of people came together and, and it started spreading. And, you know, we have, we have a lot of global mobility of people or we had and it went from from one place to another like dominoes and and it's spreading back and forth now um, this disruption is sort of a moving disruption then so we had the hospitals overloaded in it in italy we don't have much visibility so at least i don't have much information about what happened in china um, it's not like the hospitals ran out of, of material overnight they just had a huge surge in cases and patients and it was a tragic and and horrible thing. And this spread. Now, I think that you have to understand that the way inventory is stored and purchased and and then uh, moved around in healthcare systems um, uh, is very different from uh, from nation to nation. So uh, I know certainly in Europe where you have public um, health systems that are managed by the state, um, it is easier to do risk pooling, meaning it's easier to to pool your resources 
and then quickly share them or move them to, to areas of need. So if you have, you know, a spike of, of cases in, in one part of the country, then in other parts of the country where they have enough beds and doctors and materials, they will either move the patients or move the resources between them. Now, what happened in the U.S. is once the disruption, the moving disruption sort of crossed the Atlantic and came uh, to New York and to other places, you have a very fragmented healthcare system, which is highly privatized. And so there isn't a lot of sharing possible if they're really different uh, organizations um, that plan independently, that store goods independently, um, yeah, that manage their resources independently. The same mechanisms were were uh, not in place. And I was just trying to imagine this and say, maybe someone has, has built a model on this, but you can already imagine it yourself. If it is one single system that shares information and shares material and shares resources and then uh, allocates them um, as the need comes up, it will be much easier to match supply and demand. And risk pooling is one of the basic things that we do. It's much, much easier to keep a large uh, block of inventory and then and then distribute it to need than to have to try and plan inventory in many different satellite locations. And I think that structure, which has its good reasons in the U.S., under those particular circumstances made it very difficult and created shortages that maybe would not have existed um, if, if it had been structured differently. This is speculative on my part, and I'm only uh, speculating about this to draw attention to the fact that design matters and design has consequences. We often talk about just the execution of a supply chain, and that's good. You should have good operations, but you know you design a system for a certain purpose. And under other circumstances, you know, where you didn't expect, you know, a disaster like this to happen, your design might not fit. I don't know if that helps us to think about it. No, it does. I mean, it, it makes sense just, just going back to the basics of industrial engineering, trying to bust out of silos. If you've got one overarching umbrella organization that has end-to-end visibility throughout all of the, the, the goods and services that are in the supply chain, you don't have to break down those silos to try to reallocate inventory, whether you've got five different companies Correct. with five different supply chains. Company B doesn't know what company D has. Company F doesn't know what company A has. Company C doesn't know what the demand is in supply chain A. It's really hard to all of a sudden on a fly break down all those silos and get that kind of end-to-end visibility that they talk about a lot in supply chain management. Exactly. I mean, then, you know, you have these independent entities and, you know, with their own walls, they, they plan independently. So their information is local. And so, you know, in a situation like this, it, it, like the, the crisis for the healthcare, and I'm, I'm just talking about healthcare here. So let's, let's, this is not a general statement for, for the healthcare would have um, been more useful or would have been, been more resilient if we had had, if, if, if uh, the U.S., I think, had had uh, less fragmentation um, in its providers, um, because obviously certain, certain places had more than enough PPE and more than enough masks and other places had too little. Demand supply matching is easier if you can pool. Uh, the risk. And that simply isn't possible with that structure. Um, in, in Europe, um, that probably worked a little bit better um, because, and you could, you could see it in reaction, like in highly centralized places like France, 
Um, they had obviously a crisis um, in big, dense cities like uh, Paris, the, and they were overwhelmed. Their hospitals were overwhelmed. And so they simply uh, put patients on fast trains to their satellite uh, cities and just sent them there for care. And then their lives were saved and there was no shortage of, there was less shortage of, of material and of, uh, of, of staff. Um, but that can only happen in a centralized country that has mm-hmm. one healthcare system run by one funder and where uh, decisions can be quickly made saying, okay, we, we have too, too few beds in Paris, but we have, you know, um, lots of beds in, in, in Strasbourg. So we, and there's like a direct train there. So they literally rebuilt their train so they could transport sick patients out of there. And that's how they solved that problem. I'm not here to comment at all on the political um, decision, you know, the political uh, nature of healthcare. I'm just looking at this as an industrial engineer and saying, okay, this is one way of solving the problem of your bottleneck. I started reading some of the literature, the medical literature, just to try and understand what this disease was about. And I saw a sort of a touching um, sort of increase in publications by doctors on how to manage their inventory. And what I saw happening um, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, I read articles by doctors saying, you know, they'd set up informal uh, uh, marketplaces, like informal portals on the internet saying, you know, I've got 50 masks. Do you have 30 gloves, you know, and where they started sharing their information um, on their own, you know, without um, the facilitation, they said, okay, this is my stockpile of stuff. I'm desperately in need of this, of something else, you know, who has it? And so they started to help themselves that way. And that's an instinctive response to, um, to what you're calling silos. We say you can replace inventory with information that is true to a certain degree. Um, But the doctors started to learn how important logistics and supply chain management is. And it starts with sharing information and planning together. You know, speaking of sharing information, we actually have an internal example of that here at IISC. Um, Our members have a social media platform that's restricted to members called IISC Connect. And we have, it's like 12 or 13 divisions and three societies. One of those societies, the Society for Health Systems, set up a channel inside Connect to share information and they held like weekly meetings or webcast or I wasn't involved in actually doing it because they're the experts and we just set up the platform, let them use it. And they shared information. There was a lot of stuff about uh, they got to universities who would start producing their, their engineering departments would start producing PPE yeah. or, you know, local businesses that were yeah. producing car parts or something would switch to producing um, medical supplies and they would share information that way. This is part of, you know, this is uh, sort of part of, you know, an intelligent response to the um, to a crisis like that, that, you know, we need to have some visibility about where stuff is, where are the stockpiles we could access, you know, who has what. And I call it a marketplace. Um, that's what we used to call it, um, you know, in the company that I used to work for. And, um, you know, this is then sort of like a grassroots citizens uh, attempt. And so the IAC did that. Um, doctors did that. And, uh, you know, I, I had I was following the crisis in India quite closely because my family's uh, there and they are doctors as well. 
and uh, um, you know the smartphone became a form of information exchange in which people would would be uh, tragically but uh, you know they would be hunting for oxygen supplies or, or um, intensive care beds and they would they would put it on the chat in the smartphone um, and that's a way of creating um, sort of an overview of, of capacity available capacity in a system normally the people who own that capacity um, you know are working in silos and not sharing that information and so we, here we had at a citizens level um, sort of uh, that information flowing to so that people could match supply to demand that will have to happen in a crisis and it shows that our societies are actually quite quite resilient in their own way individuals are not resilient but um, if we connect capacity and if we connect organizations if we connect our systems or we connect into systems and behave as systems then um, we're definitely a lot more resilient it's kind of a takeoff on the wisdom of the crowd is more intelligent than one person, no matter how brilliant that person is. One person trying to strive heroically to serve service the supply chain is not going to get it done. But an entire network of people pooling their information is much stronger. Networks are powerful. They have accelerating effects. Uh, they, they amplify and they distort information as well, as we know. Um, but uh, that's that's definitely, I mean, that's why supply chains exist, uh, Michael. Think about it. Um, and it's like, we were talking about the rhetoric that's that's uh, going on out there and it's fueled by by the panic and the and the sadness and you know the the stress the anxiety we all felt in the crisis one of the the other statements that that i strongly disagree with or you know that i hear is that the global supply chain has become uh too lean and so we should, should become fatter and and uh, have more inventory to to be able to be resilient the other um casual and and dangerous opinion is that global trade is bad for us that uh, the reason everything broke down which it didn't. Um, but the the reason uh, we, we ran out of supplies is because uh, we were too dependent on country X, Y, Z. And you can fill that in for yourself. Um, and uh, I think that's another myth that we must counteract that uh, if we were producing everything at home, meaning in one country, putting all your eggs in one basket doesn't mean you're increasing your resilience. And um, that's uh, something that that Richard Baldwin, who's a professor here in Geneva, said. He said that firms that have diversified suppliers and a production network across different countries can adjust their production when a disaster occurs in one place. And he's the one who said, and I'm reading a, a quote from him from an excellent article he wrote he wrote um, uh, that's called trade conflict in the age of COVID-19. He said, putting all your eggs in one basket does not diversify risk, even if the basket is at home. The fact that we had factories and suppliers and operations all over the world that, you know, if it, if it, uh, if it shuts down in China, we, we, we got supply from Eastern Europe. And then when Eastern Europe shut down, China was already beginning to recover and, and went back online and uh, put on three extra shifts to start um, producing more PPE. They ramped up their production dramatically to supply the world. And that's happening all over the place. So, you know, certain parts of the world um, lockdown and others compensate. 
And so uh, global trade is actually, Baldwin says, has been essential to fighting the pandemic for all nations around the world. Well, global trade is in a lot of ways, it's the key to prosperity. I mean, seriously, do you really think that any one country could produce everything from its own stores and its own raw materials that its population needs effectively and efficiently and affordably. I'm talking, you know, food, we're talking medicine, housing, clothing, services. Even the United States probably can't do that affordably for its entire population without relying on global supply chains, not chain. Well, I think your rhetorical question answered itself. I live in a tiny country called Switzerland, and uh, we would definitely run out of essential goods if we had to make everything ourselves. And larger larger countries like Canada, Russia, the U.S., they, you can definitely probably be more autark, meaning self-supplying at some level, but the quality of life will be totally different. You know, our prosperity, and this is this is basic economics 101 or 0 0.1, um, you know, tells us that it's really specialization in trade that makes us rich. Mm -hmm. um, it's simply a fact. And I'm not arguing here for, to, about creating enormous wealth. I'm just uh, talking about you and me as ordinary middle class people um, being able to afford a smartphone. Now, if you had to produce all of that in the U.S. With, with factories in the U.S., all of the supply in the U.S., every single piece of that supply chain in one place, I guarantee you only the very rich elite would be able to afford it and the quality wouldn't be worth buying. Okay, so what you want is the people who know how to do things um, doing it. You want the best possible supplier for this. And it's, I'm not just talking about the cheapest. I'm talking about the best. You know, there are certain parts of the world that just do things better. And some of it is actually quite mysterious. Um, but, uh, you know, we have skill sets in different parts of the world that have developed through economic systems, through history, through trade associations or, you know, the apprenticeship system in Europe is, is one example. But, but um, you know, we all have different skills and global supply chains, which global value chains and supply chains, which uh, have been established since the 80s, they um, have uh, have basically put that whole principle to work. So we are all better off. Although I appreciate the, the good intentions and the work, but really, I don't want to, you know, if I'm dying or my, my child is dying, I, do, I would rather take a ventilator from the, you know, world-class uh, supplier here in Switzerland called Hamilton than one that was uh, improvised by General Motors uh, on the fly. You really want um, that kind of specialization in place. And even Hamilton doesn't make all of the parts itself. Yeah. And they have they have obviously years of expertise making that Absolutely. versus you know somebody who is doing it for the first time. And the whole thing about industrial engineering and standardization, the more iterations you get of any product that you were doing, the better you get at it. This company has has put generations of thought into perfecting it. Yes. Yes, that's the your point is absolutely right, Michael, that, um, you know, all of that continuous improvement 
is embedded in that product. And there's a reason why um, that supplier is, is really the best. There's a reason why, um, you know, Boeing makes the best uh, airplanes and you wouldn't want necessarily an airplane from a startup in New Zealand that makes it all by themselves. Uh, you know, you want to benefit from that know-how. You want to benefit from that whole industrial base um, that's been set up. You want to benefit from the efficiencies in there. You want to benefit from the R&D. You want to benefit from the relationships they have with their suppliers and so on and so forth. This like an infinitely complex system that's been built up and it's really a miracle and we should appreciate it for what it is. It's not about exploiting um, people around the world. It's actually about um, giving work and sharing wealth around the world and all of us being better off at, at the end of the day. Exactly. Despite all of the opprobrium heaped upon supply chains worldwide in, in a lot of areas from the, the mass media, I believe it was The Economist reported that global supply chains are going to supply 10 billion vaccine doses this year. If you cut the nodes throughout the, all of those networks that are bringing everything together, I doubt you could get half of those. The capacity would, would not be anything near that. You know, when, when we do work together and we have this division of labor across the globe, um, yeah, it's it's really possible to solve problems like that together. And, and the vaccine supply chain is a good example of that. Um, you know, again, what we read in the press is always sort of the bad news and um, the individual um, barriers, like uh, the things that didn't work out right and the fighting, the infighting and the selfishness of saying, okay, vaccine nationalism, we want all this for ourselves. But um, there is really a lot of, of collaboration going on to, um, to get it out there quickly to a lot of people. And there's a lot of interdependency in there. Some of the articles that you sent me to read to prepare for this uh, talk specifically about that. You know, if you've got uh, inputs for country A going to country B and they're producing vaccines and then they're distributed to countries D, E, F, G and H, you have a trade war between country A and country B. Yeah. All of those countries suffer. All of those countries suffers. You know, the chain is full of interdependencies and, um, you know, we we want to keep things flowing. That's why open, you know, open markets um, uh, increase uh, um, GDP for everybody involved. And uh, these global value and supply chains um, give access to um, economic growth also for, for starting, you know, for, for low income countries. And it gives uh, poorer countries access to things like vaccines. And so absolutely, they are inter interdependent. And I think we should remind ourselves that if we keep, if we bring all of that home, bringing factories home and, and creating, you know, there, I have also like a, a famous uh, quote by a, a politician who shall not be named is that, you know, I think supply chains should not exist. I think it should all be made in America. Um, I think we have to remind ourselves that we do not eliminate dependencies if we keep it all in one place. Um, and uh, the dependencies exist because you're still waiting, uh, you know, for if you have it all under one roof or all in one nation, um, you're still waiting um, in any industrial process for, for goods to come in from the last station. 
And um, if you force it into one place where people don't don't have the same level of, of capability and don't have all the raw materials and all of the know-how, um, it's certainly not going to be a more efficient or effective supply chain. And the quality of the goods won't be better. And you, you will still have shortages. Yes. And they will be worse. They might be worse. I mean, I don't want to. It's speculative, Michael. I don't know. I cannot even imagine what a national, a fully nationalized um, home based supply chain would look like in any country. If everything were made in India, if everything were made in Switzerland, um, you know, from our food to our cars, you know, to our, our pharmaceuticals, to our clothes, you know, we, I, I just can't imagine how, how miserable our lives would be if, if I did drive a car that was made in Switzerland. Switzerland does not have the capacity to do so. And, um, you know, we, there, there, there are actually jokes in Europe about, uh, you know, food cooked in the U.S. Uh, in 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 Britain and uh, and cars made in France. Um, so you know, it's like we don't want to go there. But I think Definitely the point not. the point is made that um, not every place um, has the expertise to do every single thing. For fear of 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 uh, belaboring the point too much, it's good to have a division of labor. It's good to specialize and to trade. And good means that growth is better and the quality of the goods are better and supply will be better meaning fewer stockouts definitely but disruptions will continue the disruption itself is not proof that a supply chain failed we will have um, volcanoes that erupt in iceland and and stop air traffic we will have um, another pandemic in the future we will have um um, you know, we will have disruptions. We will have earthquakes in Japan or tsunamis in Asia or flooding in Thailand that will, you know, these are disruptions. So this, these are natural and man-made, dis, um, man-made disasters. We will have, um, we will have continuing refugee crises in, in the European region. And that actually uh, had, had a knock-on effect on supply chains saying, because um, border controls were reintroduced, that made supply chain transport much slower. And obviously, you're going to need more pipeline inventory if your transport uncertainty goes up. And that's the task of every uh, engineer, of every industrial engineer to say, okay, how much more do I have to build into the system if this parameter changes? It's not the disruption itself that proves the the um, sort of the failure of the supply chain. It's the wrong decision uh, that that is the failure. Disruptions will occur. So what we really have to become good at is at risk management. Well, Bubu, I think we're going to leave it right there because we're coming up on about an hour. But uh, it's always great to talk to you and to wrap it up. Uh, we need trade. We need supply chains. We need better supply chain managers. And Lean has been a fantastic tool to really help us get through this pandemic. Don't believe everything you read in the papers. And don't believe everything professors say. And, and I work at a university, so don't believe everything I say. But I, I'm glad if it was, if it was helpful and, and thought-provoking um, to share uh, some of these reflections with you and your readers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Metro Atlanta. This podcast is produced by David Brandt, Keith Albertson, and Michael Hughes, and edited by David Brandt. 
You can listen to all episodes of Problem Solved and learn about sponsorship opportunities by visiting our website, podcast.iise.org. You can also learn more about IISE at the Institute's website, www.iise.org.